Good morning, everybody. Denny was reminding me today that we've now gone over chapter 20 of the Revelation three times during this study. You're probably all sick to death of it. <laughs> but of course, I think you do understand why that chapter it is so catalyzed american society everybody pays attention to it and of course me being an old-fashioned guy and a wooden literalist i kind of think they don't know what's in it at least the very popular books here's the thing uh you know the most popular thing the movement the thing that has everybody running after it is just usually not the true thing and the things that have lasted the hundreds or thousands of years that have been patiently paid attention to by the church in history, that's probably the stuff. It's not an absolute rule, but uh, it helps. So going back to the 20, pay paying attention to verse 2, but starting from verse 1, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain, and he seized the dragon, that ancient servant, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So everything you hear about every different argument about the millennium is based on this verse. That is the word millennium. That is the thousand years. It's not all over the Bible. It's in this one place. And so as we were talking about last week, the big argument is whether or not Jesus Christ returns at the beginning of that millennium, which we call premillennial, sometime during the millennium, or that the millennium is not a literal thing, sometimes called all millennial, and after or at the end of the millennium, which is often called post-millennial. Now, this specific denomination, being 500 years old, has tended to be all millennial to post-millennial, but never pre-millennial. Now, one of the reasons is in the early church, the first two or 300 years, some of the church fathers, now when we're talking about the church fathers, especially if you're talking about the apostolic fathers trained by the apostles themselves, they have a special place in our theology. We don't consider them to be infallible or incapable of error or even incapable of misunderstanding what the apostles taught them because that happens right in the Bible, right? There's people in the Bible that were trained by the apostles, that were called by them, heretics and people that left the church and all of that. So even some of those very early figures are capable of not getting things right. Here's another thing. You guys have probably heard about churches that do not agree with each other about every interpretation of the Bible, right? You've, you've heard about it. You've probably never seen it, but you, you know that sometimes we disagree. Uh, well, they did that in the early church too. So you can't necessarily take the one view of the early church and say that must be the right interpretation. Sometimes, frankly, there's not one. There's a series of them, and they always have good reasons why they believe things, but they don't always agree. Uh, so with that, when we get to today and people disagree, we do look at the history of the church, what's called historical theology as a measure, but it's just not an absolute rule. 
You all know what the absolute rule that came from the Reformation is. Sola Scriptura. The Bible is the only infallible thing. All the rest of us are fallible. Even in those big things we write, like the Westminster Confession of Faith, we don't think it's infallible. That's our two cents on what we think the Bible teaches. People are allowed to agree with it or disagree with it, but all of us have to agree with this. Uh, so when we get to something like this, then we want to look at where did it come from? When did this premillennial rush arise? And it was during the 1840s to 1860s, but didn't become really popular until the 1910s and 1920s. As you all know, that's very recent. In church history, that's like a second ago, right? So that's when it became super popular to say the end of the world was happening right away because of Revelation. And, interestingly, some things that corresponded to that theology seemed to be happening. You know, uh, probably none of us uh, here remember when there wasn't Israel. It only came back together in 1948, right? Uh, but before that, Israel was kind of a smoky figure behind the Bible, and now it's a country in the Middle East, and you can get on a plane and go there. So them coming back together seemed to fit with that theology. Really, it fits with all of the theologies, which makes it yes, less than useful as a measurement. But if you were expecting that right after Israel came back together, the world would end, well, then you can measure that by Scripture, right? And, you know, it's still there. So uh, as we go back to this, whether or not you take the verse as saying Jesus is going to come back, then this will happen. Satan will be put away. You know, his, his, his reign of terror on the earth will be mitigated and limited, and Christ will rule on the earth for a thousand years. Whether or not you think that's a future event or something that already happened is the name of the game here. Now, if you think it already happened, people are going to ask you how. Satan rules this world right now. The Bible says Satan rules the world. But that word cosmos, as it's used in these passages, is a very specific word. When the Apostle Paul says that Satan is the ruler of the powers of the air and kind of implies that he has a ruling capacity in the world, when he says the world, does he mean us? Does he mean the entire ball of dirt that we call the world? Does he mean the earth? Does he mean the current people that are under his sway and power? Does he mean the people that don't believe in Jesus? There's a lot of different worlds used in the Bible. And the Bible often even corresponds a, dif a distinction between spiritual and fleshly as being of Christ or of the world. So when it says Satan is ruling the world, does he mean that he rules even more than Christ, who he also says rules the world, right? So many times we've talked about how there's these two competing kingdoms in the world. There are two kingdoms, the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of the world. And the kingdom of Christ is increasing through time from 2,000 years ago to today, and the kingdom of the world is decreasing through time. So here's the thing, but that doesn't seem, you know, it says here he's locked up in a cell for 1,000 years, 1,000 being one of those difficult numbers because it's too specific to be taken literally. You might think to yourself, it's exactly specific enough to be taken literally. But a thousand turns up again and again in the Bible. And if, if this is the place where we take it literally, it will be the only place in this whole book. To God, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and so on. So here it says, 
Now, here's the thing. Does it say here that Satan has absolutely no jurisdiction, no authority, and no functions in the world for the thousand years? Now, you remember what things were like in the Bible before Christ. There was one nation out of the entire planet dedicated to God. And God says it was a small, confused, kind of, you know, nothing nation. He, likes he says it again and again. He says, this is not the biggest or the brightest nation. I didn't choose you because of, that, because of that. I chose you because you were the smallest and the weakest, so that when I overcame the world, it would be all my glory. So in that, when you get to the place that the devil is ruling and reigning, we see it most clearly, not even in the, the book of Job, where the devil went in and had to have a conversation with God about who he could persecute, but we see it in the temptation. Because in the temptation of Christ, he takes him up on the top of you know, a high mountain and shows him all the nations of the world and says, I'll give you all of these if you'll bow down and worship me. And Christ says, get thee behind me, Satan. Right? So Jesus succeeds at what Adam failed at. Adam failed to the lies of Satan. Christ did not. But Christ did not so that he could take possession of all the nations of the world. Here's what was being offered to Jesus at that moment. You can have all of these without the cross, without death, without suffering, without the atonement, without honoring your Father, and without giving the glory to God. I'll give them to you right now for free. All you have to do is bow down and worship me. Instead, Christ went to the cross. In ways you can think, he just did it right instead of wrong. So who is really ruling the world right now. I mean, there's a reason that in these phrases, even the Revelation, we find these continuing phrases. We, we pay a lot of attention to time indexes and the ways that things are phrased. It says Christ will continue to rule and to reign until. Until what? Until all of his enemies are beneath his feet. Now, if he's only starting to rule and reign after the end of the world and is not ruling and reigning now, those kind of verses really make no sense, right? Uh, so when Satan is shut up, does that mean that he is still not exercising his power and will through spiritual forces of darkness in this world from the time of Christ until now, to a lesser and lesser extent, but still, is he still a commander, is he still a king of this worldly system, or is he not? Well, I would say that this does not mean that he has no power whatsoever. And then we notice this other part, he throws him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him that he might no longer deceive the nations. Why? Because the gospel was going forth and now the nations are going to learn to know Christ, which is what we've seen through history. Until the thousand years were ended. After that, he'll be released for a little while. And so, you know, I brought up to you last week, are we really going to say that Christ is going to come back? He's going to be ruling on a throne in Jerusalem. Physically, we're going to see him and be worshiping him there. And then after a thousand years, Satan is going to be released again and deceive the nations after a thousand years after the end of the world. Is that the road that you want to toe? Is that the, you know, is that what you want to take? Because people don't know they're taking that. They're just trying to read the Bible. People don't talk about that part because it's uncomfortable, right? It makes us all go, wow, really? Is that my view? If you have the premillennial view that his literal physical coming back at the end of the world is the beginning of this thousand years. That is your view. You can't have another view. If his coming is his first coming, and he conquered Satan on the cross, rose again from the dead, and reigns for the thousand years until the end, 
Satan can be released again at the end because it's now. That can happen at any time. That's why, you know, uh, one of the things about our theology that makes it, us uncomfortable is we say, you know, well, when's Jesus coming back? Well, it could be today. Could be another thousand years. People hate that. But at the same time, we don't have a lot of things telling us exactly when we're just supposed to look busy till he gets back. Right? Don't come back and don't have him come back and you're all, oh, I, I, I buried my talents on the ground so you wouldn't lose any money. That's not the message. So here as we go on, then I saw thrones and seated on them those to whom authority was committed to judge. This phraseology has come up three times before in this book. So hopefully by now you'll recognize it in four, in six, in uh, 11. Also I saw the souls who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and the word of God and those who had not worshiped the beast. We spent a lot of time in the beast and its image and had not had its mark on their foreheads and their head foreheads and their hands, we saw also that there's a correspondence right after these passages talking about the beast who is man in the fallen world to those who are in Christ. And they have his mark on their foreheads. Uh, the rest of the dead did not come to life, so the resurrection doesn't happen until the thousand years were ended. And that's why one of another reason why this older view has a lot of clout. I mean if you have Christ come back, literally, and there's no resurrection from the dead, what are we really talking about at the end of the world then, right? It does make more sense to say that if the second coming is the coming that we're talking about, then all the dead will be raised in Christ at that time. So after the thousand years, however you interpret that, that's when the dead are raised. There's nothing else you can do with it they either have to be raised before it or after it, or sometime in the middle. I'm really confused here. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's 999 years to choose from. That's why. It's, well, I understand. Okay, we'll, yeah. we'll stop right there where the dead came back to life and sure. reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Where do you say that happens? The, uh, verse 5. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. Now, if there are those that all have come into their new life, because remember, we have two deaths and two lights in the Bible. So it gets confusing, especially in the Revelation. You have death. All of us will taste death. Then you have the second death. And it uses that phraseology, the second death. And you have life. You have this life. Then you have the next life, the afterlife, eternal life. So it can get a little confusing. But in this verse 5, it says the rest of the dead. Who are the rest of the people who, who are dead? Uh, the reason this phrase is, that phrase is in there is because it's talking about the resurrection of the dead that happens on the last day. And the reason I can use that shorthand is we've all heard about the resurrection from the dead on the last day. But if it happens at the beginning of the thousand years, it means one thing. And if it happens after the end of the thousand years, it means another thing. And here it says it happens after the thousand years. You have to remember that in the premillennial eschatology, you have at least four comings of Christ. Here, in this chapter, you have at least two. He, comes at the, he came, he went to heaven, he comes again at the beginning of the thousand years, and he comes again at the end of the thousand years. Now, we just have a simpler system. He came, he rules and reigns in heaven, he comes at the end, that's it. You will not get a good movie or a book out of that. It's short, it's to the point, it's not, 
you know, we, we've got no helicopters, we've got no nuclear wars that we have to have, we don't have any of those things. He came, he rules and reigns, he comes again. Yeah. So here, the rest of the dead did not come to life. So, you know, we're not saying that the dead will not be raised when Christ comes again. They will be raised when he comes again. That will be the day. This is the first resurrection. Blessed is and holy is he who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And then again, you have a thousand years. What does that mean when he comes and they're first raised from the dead? Yes. I said for a thousand years you're going to have people dying all along. Well, you kind of have to because if you take the second coming as being him starting his ruling and reigning on earth for a thousand years, and you have Satan released at the end of the thousand years to deceive the nations, uh, a lot of those people are going to hell. They're going to die the second death. He's going to deceive the nations, it says. So that either happens at this time of history, or it happens after the coming of Christ, what they call the second coming. I'm just telling you, what are you going to do with it? you got to do something with it, right? It has to all make sense. Uh, to me, it makes the most sense that that all happens at the end of time. There's one day. All of these things happen on one day. He comes back. The judgment happens. All of those things. But that would mean that right now we are in the thousand years. And, you know, the biggest problem with that is it's been 2022 years. Depending on where you start counting. But if the thousand years is ceremonial, as most of this book has been... That's not a big problem. We're taking it literally. We're just taking it literally as non-literal. Not to be confused. But you know. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. That's verse 7. And will come out and deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. Now so many of these verses that have been used for that other theology, it actually says heaven. All that stuff happens in heaven. It says in heaven, one side of heaven to the other, the four winds of heaven, the angels of heaven. So the fact that they keep implying we will see it on the earth is false. It happens in heaven. This happens on earth. He's released into this place. Now we know he's been released to this place before. We've seen the places and the interactions with the devil on earth before. This is not news. But that his limited capacity and the interactions and his power on earth is released for a time, that's something new. That I believe, this says, happens at the end of the world. It doesn't happen at the end of Christ ruling in Jerusalem for a thousand years. So that's when you'll know there's the end of the world. There's a few other things. Like I believe there will be a worldwide and uh, uh, national conversion of the Jews to Christ their Messiah before the end of the world. I think we have several, several verses that say that. But it doesn't say the world will end exactly right under that, after that. Like if it happens on Tuesday, the world will end Thursday. What if there's a worldwide conversion of the Jews to Christ, and then, you know, God still waits around a thousand years? So that's the way the Bible works. He's not in a hurry. Uh, Gog and Magog, together, together for the battle. This is that great battle of Armageddon that we all know is so famous. Their numbers like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plains of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints. 
the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Uh, so that sounds end of the world to me. Am I alone on this? I don't think I am. You know, all the old dead guys agree with me, so I feel like I'm in good company. Okay, now to chapter 21. Finally, we get some good news. We have juggernauted and trudged through chapter 20. We've grappled with the difficulties. As I've told you, the great theologians that argue about chapter 20, they're all good. It's not like I'm saying that any of them don't believe the Bible or they just had silly ideas. You just can't have them all. You have to choose what you think about those verses, right? But not a lot of it is great news or very happy. Then we get to chapter 21, the new heavens and the new earth. There's only 22 chapters in this book. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. So you're talking about after the end of the world. You know, the Bible never uses the term the end of the world anywhere in that. That's just an idiom of our contemporary culture, especially from the 1950s until now, right? The Bible never really has an end of the world. It has a translation of the world. It has a transfiguration of the world from what it became in the fall when sin came into it and things were broken to a newness that will last forever and ever. So in Peter, we do get some looks into this. He says the elements themselves will be consumed by fire. You remember once God destroyed everything by water. And he promised he would never do that again. But the other elements are up for grabs, right? At the end, he will consume all the elements by fire and remake them new and perfect because sin will have been dealt with and sin will be gone. So now everything can be made permanent, including permanent bodies that do not break down, that do not get sick, wills and spirits that do not sin, and we will live forever and ever. And, and that's what we get to in this chapter, in chapter 22. And I saw the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride and adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall be there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Now, this is actually a hard verse because all through the Bible, we've been dealing with the transitory nature of being able to halfway see God. If God did not reveal himself to us, perhaps there's nothing we could know about him other than his barren existence, or perhaps that he's good. Because he's revealed himself in scripture, we know him as a friend, we know him closely. This is the revelation of himself. Uh, to take it in a weird direction, don't take me too literal on this, but this is the best that God could do to reveal himself to us in our present estate. You remember all those times when God wasn't really trying to keep the people back, but he said, don't let them come too close to me because they'll be consumed by my glory. They'll literally be incinerated by the power of his pleasant presence. You know, he gave no, when God wants to give a superpower, it's not like what we do. We've got Samson, right? But he gave Moses a special power to not be consumed by the glory of God so that at least one person could come up and meet with him, representing Christ. But when he went down, he was still shining 
with the glory of God, so much so that the people were terrified of it, they were not happy about it. And so he put a veil over his face to cover the residual glory of God so that he could interact with the people and tell them what God said. So it's not that God's trying, this book is not hard because God's not trying to tell you the straight stuff. It's, the book is hard because he can't tell you the straight stuff. Now in this final thing, you notice that God, that the earthly Jerusalem is replaced with a heavenly Jerusalem. And it comes down, and there's no temple in it. And, you know, when this was first written, that was scandalous to the Jews, right? That Jerusalem would be basically replaced, and there would be no temple in it. But why does it say there's no temple? God is with them, and he is their temple. Now, this is that uh, the quorum deo, the face of God, the having direct access to God, where we don't need a temple, and we don't need a mediator, and we don't need sacrifices because we have direct access to God day and night that we were originally created to have. Now that is the glorious thing. So this entire drama from the beginning of Genesis all the way to here in the Revelation has all just about been about taking out the trash, getting rid of all the garbage and the nonsense so we can have this direct unmediated relationship with God. So now... He will dwell with us, and we will dwell with him. You, you might want to notice here, we don't go to heaven. Now, I know that's a hard thing for a lot of folks. If you die, you will go to heaven because you've got nowhere else to go, right? And it even says that those that are there that don't have their bodies yet are in an intermediate state where they're alive and they're conscious, but their physical bodies will not be resurrected until the last day. And then you'll be complete because you'll be body and soul or spirit, whichever you want to call it. But we're not meant for a permanent life in heaven. We were created for a permanent life on earth, a sinless, perfect earth that is beautiful and suited exactly to us. And we're suited exactly to it. Uh, this morning, Fiona really wanted to know what we're going to eat in heaven. I said, I don't know, Adam ate fruit and stuff. I, I guess we'll eat that. But... You know, she also wanted to know, are we going to eat animals? And I was like, well, probably not. And then her big question, she snuck in the back door because she knew I saw it coming. But what we should really want to say is, will there be dinosaurs? <laughs> God made dinosaurs when the earth was good. Dinosaurs are not a byproduct of the fall. When the earth is remade, probably everything that he made will be here but sinless. And that means the lions won't eat you, but it does not mean there will be no lions. Now, will lions eat other animals? I don't know what the divine economy of eternity will be. But there will be dinosaurs. I believe there will. There's something amazing that God created for a specific purpose. Yes? Do you believe that the eating of each other by animals uh, is a consequence of the fall? It is a huge debate in theology whether or not any kind of death, even insect death, is a consequence of the fall or part of the design. Uh, I tend to think that it's a consequence of the fall. That even the insects would not be... You know, uh, I, one of the things that convinced me that before it was my opinion, but now I'm... Uh, mosquitoes in Mississippi convince me that all of it... Is a consequence of the fall. Yeah. Do all dogs go to heaven? <laughs> well, the thing about it is, 
like especially our little sweeties, they want their dog back in heaven. Right? They want a resurrection of all dogs. And God does not promise that. I'll go even as far as this. Scripture says nothing about it. Now, where, where Scripture is silent, we have to have the wisdom to be silent, not think we know. Now, we know that people are raised from the dead, imperishable. We know that when they close their eyes to this world, they open them in heaven with the Father, but that they're not in their final estate. There's a whole chapter in here, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, where the Apostle Paul just goes off on this whole thing about what the final resurrection is going to be like. So he gives us way more detail, right? Uh, but there's not a word in the Bible anywhere about a resurrection on the last day of the animals. We have great confidence there will be animals. There are even spiritual animals. Animals don't exist only in physical form. You're like, what are you, what are you talking about? That sounds a little weird, right? Well, I'm just taking the, the Bible at its word. Do you remember when Elijah took the captain of the armies, he went to the captain of the armies of the Assyrians, and he led them into the territory of the Hebrews, where they were surrounded by the Hebrews. And God said, don't kill them, let them go, but first open their eyes. And he opened their eyes, and he saw the armies of the living God on horseback, ready to come down and decimate them all, right? On horseback. Now, also, there are angels in heaven that have remarkable similarities to animals, you have to remember, God made the animals first. Now it's true they were just practice for making us. But still, when he made them, he said he made them and it was good. Now, it was good only means he was pleased with them. When he did destroy the earth by water, he also saved all the animals. He didn't just save us. He likes them, right? He has more respect for them than we do. It is true that there's another place in the stories of Elisha where it's implied that for an animal to meet, eat a human being is a perversion of nature. It's a consequence of sin. God did not make them to do that. He made us to care for them and to be rulers over them, but he didn't make them to eat us. That's a consequence of the fall. Uh, so it's a complicated kettle of fish, isn't it? What it's going to be like on the last day, what it's going to be like in the resurrection. So, you know, I don't uh, tell my kids every truth. Because some truths are better appropriated at an age where they can understand it. But I don't want to keep anything true from them that they need either. And often when they ask about it is when they need to know. Uh, and I can't guarantee them that every cat, every bird, every fish, because we've gone through fish like Jacques Cousteau. We've been going through fish for, uh, that they will get all those fish back. But there will be no fish in the next life. I don't have any basis for that. If there's a new heavens and a new earth, the new earth will probably be a lot more like the situation in Eden than it will be like the situation today. Uh, so, you know, I don't want to make them false promises and tell them they'll get back all their animals, but that there will be animals seems to be a foregone conclusion. Right? Uh, the animals in, in the Bible's telling of it, the animals did not develop arbitrarily and accidentally over millions and billions of years into all of the species we have today. God made them all in six days. He made them all pretty quick because they were very well designed and he knew exactly what he was making. So the circle of life, the circle of life, uh, that didn't just happen. That's the way he set it up. And he set it up to work even in the conditions of the fall into sin. 
So I tend to think there will be no death. And, uh, you know, this is very uncomfortable, almost heretical talk in Mississippi, but we will probably be vegetarians. <laughs> You're going to see in the next chapter, he talks about what we're going to eat, and it doesn't actually include meat. Uh, so will there be hunting and the eating of animals in the next life? I don't know, but there's not a lot of evidence for it. it was, there wasn't any before the fall. Now, one of the reasons that we can't say vegetarianism is God's norm is there's places in the Bible where God specifically orders his people to eat meat. I want you to take this animal. I want you to kill it. I want you to cook it. There can't be any blood in it. And then you're going to eat it. So that's about as not vegetarian as you're going to get. Uh, at the same time, you know, to to sort of go to a barbaric extreme in the raising or the humiliation or even in the preparation of animals to places that he said not to go. He even tells us in the Bible, you're not allowed to be cruel to your animal. God doesn't like it. It's not like being cruel to a human, but it's not nothing to him. Every once in a while, you know, uh, kids get this fascination with bugs, you know, and they want to take them apart. It's hard to teach your kid. You can't even torture a fly. But you can smash it. <laughs> you can take that fly swatter and you can kill the fly because he's getting on my hamburger. But you may not torture the fly because that's weird, right? <laughs> She's like, I can. <laughs> well, now we're out of time on this one. Don't torture it. If you think about things, even the American way that we handle cattle, right? I love horse country. It's totally different than cow country, right? But the way that we kill cattle, even, you know, the bolt that immediately shoots into the brain and just puts it out like that, is from the influence of Judaism earlier and Christianity after. The idea that it would suffer needless pain and suffering in order to feed us. There's this idea in Christianity that really you do a prayer every time you hunt. If you go out and you kill a deer and you're going to feed your family with it, it's God's provision. You honor God. You honor the animal. You take him out. You don't let it have needless suffering. Also, you don't kill just for fun. You kill for food. It's right. It's good feeds your family, takes care of people. Uh, all of that is Christian sentiment. It all comes from in here, you know. Uh, so we're not going to get through the rest of this today because we got on the dogs go to heaven thing. But <laughs> that's okay. That's all right. I was, but, I was trying to Google it yesterday. There was like no answer. I, I came across an old picture of my mom well, here's, here's what we do know. In the day of the resurrection, whatever happens, we'll be okay with us. We will understand it. We won't care. We will be happy. Uh, there are many things that the Bible says is going to happen that God actually explains to us. You know, uh, don't delve too far into this because this is like hard stuff. Uh, if you think about things like people being thrown into the lake of fire. We're not supposed to be happy about that. That's what we like, yeah! Nobody does that. And the Bible says we are not even allowed to be happy about the downfall of our enemy. 
if God happens to take out your enemy, you might be okay with it, right? But you're not supposed to have a party. And he says he'll correct you if you get too happy about the downfall of your enemy, because now you've got a problem. He doesn't say he won't take out your enemy, though, right? But with us, it's about attitude. We're not God. We're only human beings. And so there are things that will happen on the last day that are terrifying and weird to us now, that on that day we will stand beside God and understand them completely and say, you were right. You were right. I didn't understand it. Now I understand it. That's why we don't don't. So in verse 5, he says this, And he who is seated on the throne, behold, I'm making all things new. Also, he said, write this down. That means pay attention to this. For these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. It is finished. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning of the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be with the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. That's as far as we can go today, but that's where it's over. That's the end. If there's an end to the Bible, you know, uh, that's where the end of this entire created order goes. The rest of this is going to be talking about what will happen after the end of the world. But as we talked about, a lot of this book is not talking about the end of the world. Some of it's talking about stuff that already happened. Some of it's talking about things that happened between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And from this portion on, it's plain that he's talking mostly about things that haven't happened yet that we will live to see on the last day. He's going to get into some other 12,000s and lots of uh, different kinds of buildings and rocks and stones. But all of that basically means it's going to be beautiful. It's going to be awesome. So right now, why don't we close in prayer? Lord God, our Father, we thank you so much for this blessing that you've given us for this book. And we look forward to even that day when it is finished, when it is over, and we stand with you, Lord God, with friends and family, and we worship you as holy, just, and true. And we thank you for this blessing in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.